This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. And here David is hiding out near the Ibex Cliffs thinking himself secure from Saul and his men who are out once again to catch David. This time David, uh, Saul has not shown up with his entire army. He's carefully chosen three crack battalions, his best men, and they're on the road coming up quickly toward David. David and his men are hidden in the cave, in the canyon, patiently waiting for Saul and his men to pass them along the road. But there are certain biological needs that even kings cannot command. And Saul has got a little business to take care of, so he makes his men wait on the road so he can have a little bit of privacy, even from his bodyguards. And David's lookouts must have seen Saul coming into the canyon, walking up the the dry stream bed, and David and his men back up into the shadows of the cave as Saul enters. Saul's silhouette fills the mouth of the cave. Saul sees nothing because his eyes have been half blinded by the bright desert sun reflecting off the white limestone. He can't adjust his eyes to the light of the cave. And Saul gets his business underway. And the Hebrew euphemism for defecating is to cover one's feet. And here Saul is literally caught with his robes around his ankles. In the most embarrassing, vulnerable position possible. It's one thing to be murdered, but to be murdered while you're on the toilet is the most horrible death of all. And the irony is that Saul has come all this way, a tremendous effort and expense. He's come all this way hunting David only to place himself in the most vulnerable position of all before the man he imagines is his enemy. And once David's men recover from the shock, they quickly realize that this is an incredible opportunity. Never in a million years will this happen again. Will Saul just happen to choose this cave to do his business in? And here Saul is hunched over before them. And David's men are hardened ruffians, and they're used to getting things done, and they urge their chieftain to action, mouthing into David's ear, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, no such promise is recorded in 1 Samuel. Perhaps God said this at one time, but more likely... David's men are interpreting from God's providence, from the way things are falling out. This clearly, David, is what God's will for your life must be. God has anointed you secretly by Samuel. He's promised you the throne. And now God is giving Saul, your enemy, right into your hands. Christians, one of our Christianese terms we use is, it was a God thing. Right? Something that is so impossible, humanly speaking, 
far, far too unlikely for it to be a mere coincidence that could, it could only have come from the hand of God. And if ever there was a God thing in David's life, it was when Saul showed up helpless into David's cave. This is a divine gift offered to David. A gift it would be madness to refuse. And this is exactly where true leaders of men exercise the killer instinct. Finish him. That is what every other leader would do. And so David's men press the dagger into his hand and they watch as David creeps up behind Saul, stealthy as a cat. But David doesn't plunge that dagger into Saul's unsuspecting back. He does something something surprising. He reaches for Saul's robe. And this just isn't any old garment. This is the symbol of Saul's office, his kingship. And it would have had a recognizable design, a special fringe. Very likely Saul is using dyes that were reserved, would be reserved only for the king. And David reaches forward with his knife, with his dagger, and carefully, quietly slices off one corner. This will be a trophy to remember. But when David scurries back to his men in the back of the cave, his conscience strikes him. David is filled with a sense of guilt. He's so sensitive to the Spirit of God, he immediately knows somehow he's violated what God wants him to do. He sinfully reached out his hand to take the symbol of kingship for himself. Earlier in 1 Samuel, many chapters ago, you may dimly remember, Samuel had pronounced judgment on Saul and turned and left him. And Saul had reached out to grasp Samuel's robe to pull him back. And the robe had torn. It was an omen for Saul. And Samuel said, this is a sign that God is going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to a man more worthy. David has been promised the kingship, but he knows immediately God does not mean for David to reach out and seize it for himself. This is not how God wants it to happen. This is an act of self-reliance rather than trusting in God. And David knows right away that this is wrong. This whole story raises the question of providence. Providence is how God works in history and in our lives. And it raises the question, how do we interpret things when God drops golden opportunities into our laps? God has promised us something, and we've been waiting a long time, and then he seems to offer it right before us. And we assume that we should seize that opportunity. But maybe not. There may be a door that God has told you you are going to walk through one day. And you've been waiting in front of that door, knocking on that door, hammering on it, trying the doorknob. And one day, 
the door opens in front of you. But that does not necessarily mean now is the time to walk through it. God has placed Saul in David's hands. It's clear from the story, from how David and Saul interpret it, this really is a God thing. And David's men assume the next step, that this obviously means that God wants David to kill off Saul and seize the throne for himself. And undoubtedly, if the situation had been reversed, if Saul had caught David in the cave, Saul would not have hesitated. But David is not Saul. And what if God's will for David is to show restraint? What if God has placed Saul into David's hands only for him to let Saul go? And what if God's providence is a test of our character, a trial of whether or not we are willing to wait for God to fulfill his promises in his own way and in his own time. And David tells his men in verse 6, The Lord forbid, God forbid, that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anoint, he's the anointed of the Lord. Saul is not just any old Israelite. He's had the sacred oil of kingship poured on his forehead. And he's been consecrated to God. Saul is God's special property. He's holy to the Lord, whatever his personal qualities might be. And however he might have sinned against David, Saul is the holy king of God. And David's conscience strikes him because he know he knows that by touching Saul, by touching his garment, David has touched God in a way that is forbidden. And David knows this because he too is the Lord's anointed. David has also had the holy oil poured on his head by the prophet of the Lord. And David has experienced in his own life what it means to be set apart for the purposes of God, to be made a sacred thing, to be under the Lord's special protection. And thus, in a way, if David strikes against Saul, he's striking against himself. And so David does not kill Saul. He regrets even touching his garment, and David restrains his men. He restrains them with great difficulty, actually. And some translations might use a very weak word, like he persuaded his men. But it's, a, it's an odd Hebrew phrase that's used that seems to describe David almost building a wall with his words between Saul and his men. David's violence is expressed in his words against his own men, insisting that they do not touch Saul in any way. And by refusing to kill Saul, David is expressing his, his willingness 
to wait in the wilderness until God is ready to lead him out. David is going to spend many more years wandering in caves, hungry, thirsty, never knowing if he will survive from one day to the next. But he's willing to remain in that vulnerable position as an expression of a single-hearted trust in God. David's men must have been very angry that he's wasted this golden opportunity, but they must have been horrified when after Saul leaves the cave, David doesn't do the sensible thing and wait quietly until the danger has passed. David walks out of the cave and calls after Saul's back, My Lord, the King! And then he falls on his face in an expression of reverence before the royal majesty. It's a huge step of faith because now David is putting himself in Saul's power. Trapped with their backs against the wall, 3,000 elite forces facing them. This is an expression of faith in God. And David speaks with the utmost respect to a man who surely does not deserve it. I mean, here Saul has exposed himself in the most embarrassing way possible with hundreds of eyes watching him from the back of the cave doing his business. But David doesn't rub his face in it. He doesn't shame Saul. He treats him, instead of humiliating him, he speaks of Saul with honor because he's the Lord's anointed. And David very politely, very tactfully, even speaks as though Saul's problem is bad advisors who are whispering in his ear. Rather than what they both know, no one's telling Saul to pursue David. This is arising from his own evil hearts. But he's given Saul a way to back down without losing face in front of his troops. This speech of David in this chapter is his longest speech in the entire book of 1 Samuel, in all 31 chapters. And it's a passionate defense of David's own integrity before Saul. And an expression of ultimate vindication, not from Saul. He's not expecting judgment from the king. David is expecting justice from the God who will decide between them both. And though David's speech is respectful and polite, it's also a rather threatening speech not threatening personal vengeance, threatening divine vengeance on Saul for how he's treated the innocent David. And David is innocent, and that piece of fringed garment he holds up is evidence to Saul right in front of his eyes of what David could so easily have done. What Saul would have done himself, but what David has chosen not to do. It's proof that David is not the scheming, evil mastermind that Saul imagines him to be. David may be a fugitive, but he is no rebel. And Saul has nothing to fear from him. Why are you wasting your time on me, Saul? Who am I? I'm a dead dog. I'm a single flea on that dead dog's back totally harmless. 
I don't want to attack you, Saul. I don't want to murder you. I just want to be safe from you. And this is a cry from David for divine justice. David has not given up a thirst for vengeance. He's not given up his hunger for vindication, but he's seeking it in God. He knows the world will never be right until evil is punished, until evil is properly dealt with. And David knows that every human attempt to correct justice somehow seems to bring about more pain and more injustice in the world. And he knows that only God is qualified to bring about true justice. And the very human temptation we all have when people sin against us, when they hurt us, when they lie about us, is to take on the role of divine judge ourselves and filled with righteous anger to go on the warpath wreaking vengeance on our enemies. But that is a lack of trust in the justice of God. And that's why Paul in Romans 12 tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And David is placing his entire hope in the justice of God. On your own time, you can read two psalms David wrote while he was in the cave. Psalms 57 and 142, I believe. And he speaks in those psalms about God being his refuge from the evil men who pursue him. And for David, these are not nice poems he's written in comfortable surroundings, having a nice little spiritual experience. He is living this out existentially as he steps forward, putting himself in the place of weakness before Paul, before Saul, asserting that his trust is in the justice of God alone. And Saul is deeply touched by this. He's pierced to the heart and he responds to David, his voice choked with sobs. Is that you, my son David? And in a moment of clarity, he admits before David and before David's men and before his own men that David is the more righteous man. I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. And even Saul is compelled to prophesy, compelled to admit that David is the true anointed of the Lord. He extracts a promise, an oath from David, that he will not destroy Saul's family line when he comes to the throne. And then they go their separate ways. Saul, back to his home. David returns to the stronghold. There's no true reconciliation. David is not foolish enough to trust the unstable Saul. He returns to the stronghold with his men, choosing 
to wait in the wilderness until God gives him the throne. Of course, there is a third story in the Bible about temptation in the wilderness. And that's when Jesus himself is propelled by the Spirit after his baptism to go in the wilderness for 40 days without food and without drink to be tempted by the evil one. And what Satan tempts Jesus with is the will of God. He offers to give Jesus all the kingdoms of this world. The very thing that the Father has promised the Son. Satan is not offering Jesus something contrary to God's will. He's offering him the very will of God. The door is opened before Jesus. It's God's will, but it's not God's way. And it is not God's time. And Jesus, therefore, refuses to walk through that door. He refuses the offer of the crown without the cross. The temptation of glory without suffering. Jesus does not take the shortcut out of the wilderness. Because the true man after God's own heart does not seize the throne for himself. He waits for God to give it to him. And so Jesus walks the path of the cross, committing himself to the God who judges justly. And instead of inflicting violence, Christ chooses to suffer violence himself. Perhaps the greatest evil in the world is not done by evil people, but by good people who are trying to do the will of God, but are not willing to do it God's way or in God's timing. Because the weapons of the flesh and the weapons of this world always seem more direct and more immediate and more effective than the weapons of the Spirit. The Spirit offers weakness. Suffering, vulnerability, being stripped of everything except for God. The Spirit offers taking up the cross and walking in the path of Jesus. And that is a hard call. That is a hard call even for good people who want the will of God. And you long to see justice in this world. It is hard to wait for God's timing. And it is hard to walk in God's way. But that is what the Spirit of God is calling us to do. 
and how tragic it is that the church is so willing to compromise the integrity of her witness for the sake of political power. To seize the throne. To do God's will with the weapons of this world, with the weapons of the flesh. And it always ends badly. It always ends badly when we take the shortcut and refuse to trust in God. And when we do that, as we're all tempted to do, we reveal our lack of faith in God's ultimate justice. Because if there is no ultimate justice, then we have to take matters into our own hands in this world, don't we? And then we end up inflicting massive damage. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, every attempt to bring down heaven from above always results in hell coming up from below. And Christians, especially Christians, have been guilty of this time and time again. The temptation of the shortcut. The temptation of what is so obviously a God thing. What is so obviously divine providence. What is so obviously something that God is placing in our hands. But that thing may actually be a test of our real character. A test of our willingness to wait on the Lord. One strange thing about this chapter is how often the word hand appears. It's used nine times in this chapter. And on your own, you can go and highlight them all. It's a story of Saul being placed into David's hands by God. But the very last occurrence of the word hand is in verse 20 when Saul says to David, in words of true prophecy, I know the kingdom of God will be established in your hand. Saul was placed into David's hand. But because out of trust in the justice of God, David refused to close his hands on Saul and crush them, he chose to keep his hand open. Saul escaped, but into David's open hand is placed the very kingdom that he is seeking as a gift of God. Through our weakness, we are strong. Because our very weakness is the open hand before God. It's an expression of our trust in true power, true vindication, true justice from God and from God alone. That is not an easy thing to do, especially for good people. So let's bow our heads and pray now that the Holy Spirit would give us the supernatural 
Christ-like grace to do this thing. Heavenly Father, we raise our hearts to you. We lift them up to your throne. The only true king, the only one who possesses perfect justice, where our vindication lies. Oh Lord, help us to live out the hard truths of this passage. Not just as a matter of theory, but as an existential act of trust in you. Lord, you know how much we hate the wilderness. You know how difficult it is, it is for us to wait. And you know how easily even the best of us, perhaps especially the best of us, are tempted to stretch forth our hands and seize the kingdom for ourselves. Give us the grace to wait. Give us the grace to fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Give us this grace, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.